from the Center for European Reform. This is the CER podcast. Posons-nous sérieusement la question de l'avenir que nous voulons et ayons tous ensemble le courage de le construire. Für uns in Deutschland ist das Bekenntnis zum vereinten Europa Teil unserer Staatsräson. A strong united Europe is a necessity for the world because an integrated Europe remains vital to our international order. This is the moment for Europe to lead the way towards a new vitality. Welcome to this Centre for European Reform podcast. I'm Charles Grant, the Director of the Centre for European Reform. We have a special guest with us today, Isabel Hardman, Assistant Editor of The Spectator magazine. And Isabel and I are going to discuss the Tory leadership contest and what it means for Britain's relationship with Europe and the wider world. We'll get on to the international aspects quite soon, Isabel. Perhaps we could just start off with the leadership contest itself. We're recording this in early August, and it looks like Uh, Rishi Sunak is not doing so well against Liz Truss. The Foreign Secretary is ahead of the former Chancellor of the Exchequer. Could you say why Liz Truss is doing so well, Isabel? Well, thanks so much for having me on. And uh, yeah, it's a fascinating reversal, isn't it, from the parliamentary stages of the contest where Rishi Sunak was the front runner throughout. And at times it wasn't clear whether Liz Truss was going to get onto the ballot or not. Uh, But we knew that if she did, she's very popular with Conservative members. Not, it has to be pointed out, as popular as Kemi Badenoch appeared to be uh, during the parliamentary stages of the campaign. And I think there are members who are upset that either Kemi or Penny Mordaunt didn't make it onto uh, the ballot paper. But uh, Truss has long scored very highly on the Conservative home surveys of, of Tory members. Uh, and, and the reasons she does that is uh, that she speaks the Tory language. I think she's um, she's very good at knowing what uh, buttons to press when it comes to the Tory membership. And we'll get on to some of those different things uh, when it comes to um, Europe, but more widely when it comes to talking about tax cuts uh, and so on. Some of the things that uh, have upset Tory members over the past few months, such as the abandoning of the manifesto pledge, which uh, led to the national insurance hike for the health and care levy. Uh, as it's called, things like that. She has opposed um, those things. And she was quite careful, uh, while not saying it herself, to let it be known um, so that it was written up that she had opposed these things in Cabinet as well. So she has long been quite popular with Conservative members. And uh, that's now working its way out now in, in the contest. But in terms of the actions that she's taken specifically during this contest and the things that Rishi Sunak has done that that haven't endeared him. Well, again, she has has really majored in in tax cuts and um, in talking about the need to get the economy going. And that has been music to Tory members' ears. Uh, She's also um, talked a lot about being loyal to Boris Johnson, which more widely and within Parliament and within the wider electorate might not be seen as being a particularly astute position to take. But there is a real narrative amongst Conservative members that Boris Johnson was stabbed in the back by his own cabinet, specifically by Rishi Sunak, who Boris Johnson himself uh, blames for his downfall. And Rishi Sunak has repeatedly had to answer questions from members at hustings and so on about not being sufficiently loyal to Boris Johnson. And Sunak would argue in, in his responses that well, you know, he, he resigned what, 24 hours before Boris Johnson went. So it's not as though he quit the cabinet in a blaze of, of fury. Um, 
either at the last minute uh, prompting Boris Johnson's resignation or indeed in the sort of months before he had been loyal right up to the bitter end. Um, but but that narrative has taken hold and it's, it's been very hard for, for, for the former Chancellor to shake that. Right, of course, the irony is that uh, Rishi Sunak voted leave and Liz Truss voted remain, but now one of the, the drums she is beating on is the Eurosceptic lever drum. Do you think, uh, Isabel, that Rishi Sunak has any chance of pulling it back at this stage, or is it almost certain that, that Truss will be the next British Prime Minister? I think it's much harder uh, for Rishi Sunak to pull things back than it is for Liz Truss to make some kind of catastrophic error that means that the, the contest changes. But, but really, you know, we're talking about something big. It's not you turn on a policy, as we've already seen from this trust, where she had to pull back very dramatically from her idea for regional pay boards, for instance. It's, it's much more likely um, that, that something big, something unexpected happens, and, and that in itself is not particularly likely. So I think we're going to see the contest sort of start to wear on over the next few weeks in a way that, that really suggests that the actual, the actual fight is, is over and really the, the Tory leadership contest has only really lasted a month from the start, including the parliamentary stages through the membership stages and to its real conclusion, which is around now because ballot papers are being sent out at the moment. They were delayed a little bit by security concerns, but um, but but that has um, but once people get their ballot papers, they, they are pretty likely to send them back. And they've told pollsters repeatedly that they have made up their mind. Right. Well, We've heard your dog barking in the background a little bit, but the one dog that hasn't barked in this leadership contest is Europe so far. I thought there might be more discussion of Britain's relationship with the EU, but why have we not heard so much about it? And what is the main position, Isabel, on the of the two candidates on the European Union? Well, I mean, it's fascinating. And you mentioned that, um, that Truss is really being treated as the Brexiteer in this contest and, and Sunak as the Remainer, whereas as Sunak repeatedly points out, he is the person who decided to, to campaign for Brexit in 2016, despite the warnings he got about the damage this would do to his career. Obviously, that was from uh, David Cameron and, and those around him. Uh, Liz Truss was um, was Remain and I know from her close friends at the time that the reason she was Remain was she was worried that George Osborne would in their words knock her block off. Um, at the time George Osborne was, was somebody who, who kept scores against people and uh, was really sort of again threatening to, to derail people's careers but, but as we know within weeks uh, George Osborne's power of patronage became completely irrelevant because David Cameron quit and George Osborne was then sacked from um, from the government by Theresa May. Um, but Liz Truss has managed to overcome that significant career hindrance, um, which at the time was taken as a decision to, to keep her career on track, uh, by being International Trade Secretary and signing all those trade deals, many of which obviously were um, just reiterations of, of, of previous agreements. Um, but then by moving to being Foreign Secretary and really um, talking very, very tough on the Northern Ireland Protocol, often in a way that Downing Street then had to, to row back from because they weren't prepared to, to be quite as out there on it as, as she was. And that's something she has again made a virtue in this campaign, saying I was constantly being blocked by the Treasury, by Downing Street on the protocol. Um, and so we've had this sort of arms race over, over Northern Ireland um, in the contest. And both of them, I gather, are committed to proceeding with the recently published Northern Ireland Protocol Bill, which would allow the British government to overrule and dis disregard many parts of the 
Northern Ireland Protocol, which was part of the withdrawal agreement that the Boris Johnson's government negotiated with the EU less than three years ago. And do you, do you think that, that whether it's Sunak or Trust, they'll push ahead with the protocol bill? I, I think so, but I think there is a difference, which is that um, in Cabinet, when the discussions over the protocol were taking place, uh, Sunak was much more dovish and was often warning against escalating confrontation with the EU um, over the protocol by triggering Article 16, uh, for instance. And um, I, I think that um, is probably something that, um, again, counts against him in uh, in Tory membership circles, but uh, will count very much for him, even as a Brexiteer within European circles. And that's obviously something, Charles, that you know far more about than than I do. Well, I think if it's the case that the next British Prime Minister pushes ahead with this protocol bill, and perhaps when the House of Lords throws it out, over, overturns the House of Lords through using the Parliament Act, I do think that almost guarantees a bad relationship between the UK and the EU, because on the EU side, they regard it as quite serious for Britain to publish, a, well, to push ahead with an Act of Parliament that basically would put it in breach of international law. The, the withdrawal agreement was an international treaty, and for Britain to renege on a treaty less than three years after it's negotiated it, it was quite a big deal as far as the EU is concerned, um, which isn't to say that they're not prepared to compromise on the protocol itself. From my own uh, talks in Brussels and other European capitals, I think if they had a, a British prime minister that they could trust, who they felt they could do business with in a, constru in a constructive way, they would be prepared to interpret the protocol in a very uh, different way from how they've done it so far, and even perhaps to change the words of the protocol and possibly renegotiate parts of it. But the sine qua known for that is there must be a government they can trust. They did not trust Boris Johnson's government, and I, I fear they may not trust Liz Truss's government, depending on how she handles it, of course, based on what she's been saying so far about the protocol. That's absolutely fascinating. And, and does that mean that she has not uh, curried favour in terms of her relationships that she's already got in Brussels? Well, I think that the, she started off rather well, actually. When, and when she initially became Foreign Secretary, she did try and do a deal on the protocol initially, uh, which didn't, didn't get very far. So she, was, she went down rather well in her early months as Foreign Secretary. But then she seemed to be, as they would see it, playing to the gallery uh, trying to keep the ERG, the European Research Group, happy, the right wing of the Tory party happy as her leadership ambitions grew. And then the views in Brussels and other places are now rather negative. In fact, I was in Paris quite recently, and as one very senior French diplomat said to me, she treats the diplomatic world like the Tory party conference, playing to the gallery all the time. She also annoyed the French by uh, the, the, the line she's taken, which uh, number 10 also took, which was to brief the British press that France and Macron were going soft on Russia and that they were trying to push the Ukrainians into a dirty deal with the Russians to compromise territory in return for peace, which I think is, as far as the French are concerned, is not true. That's a, or at least it's a grotesque exaggeration. So she went down pretty badly in Paris in recent months. And I don't think the views in Brussels and Berlin are much more positive. So I think if, if trust does become prime minister, we can expect a fairly bad relationship. But the most important thing of all from the EU is, is the Northern Ireland Protocol. That is a treaty which the EU thinks the UK has to stand by. And if it doesn't stand by it, there will be we will be moving towards a trade war between the UK and the EU, with possibly the trade and cooperation agreement actually being suspended. And I think the Treasury as an institution understands that, and therefore Rishi Sunak has understood that and is probably less enthusiastic for a 
trade war than, than Liz Truss maybe, but even Liz Truss as prime minister would presumably think twice before embarking on a course of action that would lead to significant economic costs. I don't know, you, you know her a bit, Isabel. Do you think she's the kind of woman who would uh, change her mind and listen to arguments and perhaps would turn out to be more moderate than, than it seems to be she would be at the moment on European questions? Oh, yeah. I mean, look, what people say in, in Tory leadership contests and what they say um, once they're in government is very different. And she has definitely been playing to the gallery on all manner of things, not just Europe, but, you know, the NHS. It, the other day at a hustings, um, a bit of an NHS nerd because I've just finished writing a book on its history. She said at this hustings that she thought the NHS needed fewer middle managers, um, which I find quite funny because actually it was Margaret Thatcher who introduced the, um, the, the system of management that we have in the NHS um, today. And she's obviously been paying a, a tribute to both in words and fashion to Margaret Thatcher throughout this contest. But there's, there's no way that she's going to come in and scrap management in the NHS and, and, and bring doctors back in to sort of manage hospitals. That's, that's just not going to happen. But it's the kind of thing that gets a clap at the hustings. Um, I think we have to, to view everything she says, whether it's on domestic reform or or Britain's place in the world um, uh, through that lens. Um, and I think she is also somebody who who is prepared to change their mind, actually. Um, uh, you know, whether it's because there's certain things, certain positions which are um, expedient to take at the time, such as on Brexit, or whether because she actually does think things through. And this is the, the interesting thing about the attacks that Rishi Sunak has made on her for previously being a Lib Dem, um, and uh, and so on, um, which is that the, she replies saying, you know, people aren't born into political parties or she wasn't born into a political party and she's thought through her positions on things. And um, that actually, you know, is seen by a lot of people as a virtue. Uh, but the reason Rishi Sunak has been making those attacks is not that he wants to highlight that uh, Liz Truss changes her mind a lot. It's actually that within some Tory circles, the idea that you could possibly have ever seen the policies of another party as being attractive is, is just mind blowing. And it's something I pick up a lot from um, you know, Tory MPs. They, they just don't understand how you could previously have been something else. Um, same with Labour, actually. You know, there is a sort of tribalism with all, in all parties yes. uh, that, that sees somebody who changes their mind as, as fundamentally untrustworthy rather than somebody who's possibly thought things through more than, than some of their colleagues. She does become prime minister. I hope she does rethink some of her policies on Europe. But um, of course, Europe isn't just the EU. It's also Russia and Ukraine. And one of the obvious things about Liz Truss, and she plays this up very much, is that she seems to see herself as a kind of reincarnation of Margaret Thatcher. And Margaret Thatcher was famously tough on Russia, the, the Iron Lady, she was called. Uh, and Liz Truss has taken a very forthright aggressive stance on the Russia-Ukraine conflict. Well, Rishi Sunak is, I guess, being a domestic policy man rather than a foreign policy man, has had rather less to say about it. Do you think there would be much difference between them when it comes to Russia and Ukraine? I don't think so. I think one of the things that the Johnson camp got out quite early on in the leadership contest, part of their revenge against Rishi, was... Um, the idea that Sunak would be soft on Putin. Um, and that comes from his position as Chancellor uh, when all the discussions about economic sanctions against the Kremlin, against Russia, were being uh, taken in, in Cabinet, that he was the one pointing out the economic impact on Britain of, of those. Now, perhaps that's a sign that he that he would you know, be less gung-ho on sanctions. I, Perhaps it's just a sign that he was that he was doing his job as chancellor and pointing out that there were that there were quite big trade offs for Britain 
um, on this, but I haven't got any impression that he would be any less uh, forthright than trust on the supply of weapons, for instance, uh, or indeed that uh, Volodymyr Zelensky has, a, has anything to fear from a change in leadership um, in, in Britain um, in the way that, that possibly Ukrainians have worried about since uh, Boris Johnson resigned, because for them, Britain and Boris Johnson in particular, the man, are the, one of the most important allies in this conflict. And I just don't think that is going to change. I'm sure that's right. When it comes to China, each of them, each of Truss and Sunak seems to be claiming to be tougher than the other on China. A year ago or so, I remember being told that in the British government, Boris Johnson himself and Rishi Sunak were two of the softer voices on China when others were pushing for a much harder attitude towards China because of its behaviour in Hong Kong and in Xinjiang and, and other problems with China. But do, do you think there's much difference between them on China? Again, I, I think Truss has been more hawkish on this, partly because of the differing job roles that the two of them have. But it probably is fair to say that she has wanted to be tougher on this than Sunak, even aside from his responsibility of, again, pointing out the economic consequences of this. Um, I think he had a much more, um, what I'd describe as a Cameroon stance towards um China in the sense that David Cameron and, and George Osborne were for a while very keen to um, to woo China but you know Liz Truss was part of that as well and he and Sunak again highlighted that in one of the leadership debates asking whether she regretted um, talking about a golden era for, for Anglo-Chinese relations. Yeah well I think if, if I mean, as far as I can see there is in political terms something of a, a, a cold war now between the West and China and Russia uh, on two sides two sides of it and uh, Politically, we have this Cold War. What is not clear to me is whether we have economic disentanglement that goes alongside the political problems. And I think there's a little bit of it happening already, like Britain taking Huawei out of its 5G system, for example. But I think if, the, if we do disentangle our economies from that of China, then I think it's going to be a, the big economic cost, which the Treasury will be well aware of, and is probably hoping doesn't, doesn't go on too, too far. And Sunak's probably aware of that, but isn't saying so much of that at the moment. Yeah, there are, I think there are a lot of um, elisions in this leadership contest, um, not just about foreign policy, but about some of the domestic problems that, that Britain faces, particularly energy policy. I mean, we've, you know, we've, we've heard so little on our, um, on our energy policy for, from either Tory leadership contender. And, and that's because the answers are, what answers they have are, are, are quite frightening and uh, they don't really want to upset the members. <laughs> No, I think exactly. You don't, you don't want to go around saying that we're all going to be a lot poorer and, and, and inflation is going to stay very high and we're going to be having to wear, wear hair shirts next winter. We don't, that's not a, not a great vote winner. And it's not a great vote winner either to say that if, 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 the, if we get to have a very bad relationship with China, we're all going to be poorer as well. But anyway, yeah. just, just to, to conclude, um, Isabel, we, we briefly mentioned the ERG, the European Research Group. Uh, could you try and explain to those of us who don't know the Tory party as well as you know, how come this group of fairly small group of a few dozen right wing Eurosceptic backbenchers seems to have sort of dictated the trajectory of the Conservative Party on Europe ever since David Cameron's been prime minister? Really, they they sort of they argued against they, they pushed against Cameron. They brought down Theresa May. They were a factor in the in the fate of Boris Johnson. And now, if any future prime minister, whether it's Truss or Sunak, seem to go soft on Europe, the ERG will, will start jumping up and down and creating problems. And could you explain where, where does the power of the ERG come from? Um, I think it's partly in its organisation in, in terms of the people who are very influential within it. So Steve Baker being a, a really important figure 
there, whether he's, you know, whether he has a formal position or not, he's always someone who is very good at amplifying the voice of the ERG, of ensuring that um, that it is organised in terms of votes and so on. It's, you know, it's it's a block vote, um, whether it's in terms of supporting leaders or whether it's in terms of a rebellion in Parliament. And if you've angered the ERG, then you can expect, you know, protest rebellions in, in the House of Commons. And, um, and, you know, you talk to people who worked for Theresa May and they are still traumatised by the way the ERG operated um, to the extent that, you know, when I talked to some of them at the, towards the end of, of her leadership, they said that every time they walked into the tea room and saw Marc Francois, again, another key mover and shaker within the ERG holding forth, they just wanted to scream. Um, because they felt that the ERG had inflicted sort of uh, lasting damage on the party. Now, I'm, I'm not sure that's fair about the ERG, um, in that I think the lasting damage was probably done around the time of Maastricht. Um, and yes. The ERG is just sort of feeding off that. But um, but 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 it, it is a, you know, you could call it a block vote or a sort of group of political thugs or, or whatever, but they're very organised. Uh, they know how to... Um, not just organise their own troops, but how to make life difficult for um, other Conservative MPs who are seen as insufficiently robust. And, um, and you know, they, they've always known how to get their way, whether it's through guerrilla warfare or through sort of suggesting to a prime minister that, that that's not a good way to go. Yeah, well, I guess if, if, the, if we're ever going to have a better relationship between the UK and Europe, we need a government that wants a better relationship. And it's hard to see at the moment how that it's hard to see at the moment that a future Tory government is going to really push for a closer, more constructive, friendlier relationship. I hope I'm wrong. But do, do you think, Isabel, that there will ever be a Conservative Party that does want what I would call a constructive, moderate relationship with the EU? And if that is conceivable, in what circumstances could that happy outcome uh, be, be brought about? I, I think one of the, the complicating factors is that, um, as Conservative MPs see it, there are other European leaders who do not want a constructive relationship either. I mean, you just look at the, the standoffs uh, near Jersey on fishing, for instance. And in their view, that's very much six of one half, a dozen of the other. And that, you know, the French are very immature when it comes to the, the new relationship between Britain and the EU as well. Now, that as may be, but you can accuse someone else of being immature while continuing to be immature yourself. And that obviously does not resolve the situation. I, I think at the moment, there is little um, enthusiasm for being the more mature party in terms of developing a new relationship between Britain and the European Union. Well, I guess you're probably right. You're certainly right to say that the French have not always been constructive and friendly in everything they have said. And But if you are right that it, there's no appetite in the Tory party at the moment for a friendly relationship, it may be that we have to have a, a change of party in government in London before we get to a friendly relationship. We, sh we shall see. And perhaps we'll do another podcast if and when that happens. <laughs> There'll be lots of changes on the way. <laughs> yeah. Isabel, thank you so much for joining this Centre for European Reform podcast and hope to have see you again with another podcast before too long. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the CER podcast. If you have any feedback for us or want to leave suggestions for a future episode, then you can find us on Twitter at CER underscore EU.